we come to this verse that Jesus Christ is the propitiation, the payment made for the sins of the whole world. So last week, we looked at this subject, Calvinism, a damnable heresy. And tonight, we're just going to continue that thought. We'll finish it tonight. There's so much we could uh, talk about, but Calvinism, a damnable heresy, part two. And uh, so what do you say? You say, well, what is Calvinism? I've never heard of it. Why are we talking about it? It is a, a belief that comes around, and Mrs. Smith reminded me when uh, she first came uh, to Gospel Baptist Church in 1992, uh, a long time ago, and uh, she asked me a question. She said, what do you think about Calvinism? Because she just learned uh, a little bit about it, and she knew it was uh, a damnable heresy. And I says, oh, I'm, I don't believe in that at all. She said, good, and she stayed. Amen? Maybe I should have told her I'm a little bit. Uh, <laughs> at one point, I don't know. Just kidding, Mrs. Smith. We're glad you're here. But uh, it's, it's a teaching that uh, gets into a, a lot of churches and a lot of uh, pastors. And mostly it's a, uh, well, it's a damnable heresy. But a lot of times it's because of laziness. It's because of laziness that people don't want to uh, ask people about their soul's salvation and confront people about heaven and hell. And so they just make up this thought uh, and they use the Bible as an excuse. And we'll look at some of those things tonight that, well, you know, it doesn't matter if I tell people about Christ and the gospel or not, because if God wants them to get saved, he already determined that they're going to get saved. If God wants them to be lost, then he already determined they're going to be lost. There's nothing I can do about it. As I mentioned before, I've never met a person who believed that. that I thought they were one of the lost people. Never have I met somebody who said, well, I'm one of the lost people. I can't ever get saved. God determined I'd be damned for eternal life uh, in hell. Uh, but we find that it is a teaching that was uh, encouraged Augustine, a, a, a Catholic, a great Catholic thinker, uh, as far as Catholic thoughts, uh, came up with this uh, thought and made it uh, popular in vogue. And one of his, uh, 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 a man who studied him, uh, John Calvin in Geneva, Switzerland, uh, took this to another level and uh, brought it into the mainstream uh, in, in Protestant churches. I thank God I'm not a Protestant. I'm a Baptist. We didn't protest anything. We never came out of the Roman Catholic Church because we were never in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, but the Protestants uh, made this real uh, popular, and a lot of Baptists have bought into it. And so uh, they think that uh, this thought of Calvinism is that, uh, you know, God just chose, uh, you know, whenever you hear this, uh, you know, pre uh, foreordained counsel before the world and God and whoever else we don't even know sat down and came out, you better run the other way, all right? Uh, and so we find that uh, they say that, well, God picked, you know, one, two, 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 all the ones, you're going to heaven. All the twos, you're going to hell. And uh, that's what they say God did. He figured out maybe it wasn't one, two, but it was mostly uh, more people than, uh, than, than were going to heaven uh, are going to hell because we know the Bible says that hell is a broad road. Many there be which go in uh, the road of destruction. Hell hath enlarged itself. And uh, so we find that that's, that's the, the belief system that we're looking at uh, explaining the Bible answer to it because you're going to hear it. It's going to come up. Listen, as a pastor, I, I, I meet other people and they, uh, they tell me, uh, that this is what they believe. And they and so you look at the Bible and say, well, how do you get that from the Bible? You don't. You get it from some dead theologian. You get it from some, uh, you know, cemetery where you went to study. And they warped your brain. And they warped your Bible. And uh, they warped your theology. And that's where you get it from. Uh, so either salvation is, number one, limited to just those whom God chooses, whatever that means, or 
Salvation is freely available to all. I choose that one. Because the Bible says, look at Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter number 10. Romans chapter number 10 and verse number 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. All you have to be is a whosoever. It's anybody. We could put anybody's name in there. The other day, uh, uh, Adam and I were out. We only talked to, I don't know, two, three people. And uh, wouldn't you know it? We found an elected person. I mean, she was, <laughs> everybody's elected, amen? She wanted to go to heaven. And I didn't ask her. I said, are you, are you a two or are you a one? Uh, you know, what, is it, what, what do you think? And no, I just said, look, do you understand you're a sinner? We spent a lot of time with her. Do you understand you're a sinner? Yeah, I understand. Went through the scripture. You understand that there's a penalty for sin. That penalty is death and hell. I got that. Okay, who died for your sin? Jesus Christ. Did you believe he was buried and rose again? Absolutely. Okay. Are you a whosoever? Absolutely. Put her name there. She trusted Christ as her Savior. Now her neighbor, Brother John's trying to get her to come to church. Amen. What a wonderful opportunity. And uh, so, isn't it exciting to find that there are people out there that want to be saved and God wants to save everyone if you're a whosoever you can be saved the whosoever wills are elected to salvation the whosoever wants are elected to damnation but it, the choice is up to the person Romans chapter number three Romans chapter number three and look if you would at verse number 21 but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all, and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have sinned, guess what? All have an opportunity to have the righteousness of Christ. That's what the Bible says. So we can take some theological book and we can take some explanation of the Bible, but the best explanation of the Bible is the Bible. So let's just read it. You know, it's amazing. People write all kinds of books about the Bible. It's even bigger than the Bible. <laughs> let's just read the Bible and find out what it says. John 3.16, a familiar verse to all of us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So salvation is either, number one, limited to just those whom God chooses, whatever that means, or salvation is freely available to all. Now let's tackle this idea. We could spend a long, long time on it, but we're just going to spend a little bit of time. This idea, because you're going to hear it as, as, you, as you talk to people, as you talk to people that have been warped by this thought, or maybe they just don't know, uh, and that is, that is they take these Bible words and they, they turn the meaning around. We're going to read some of their own uh, sayings. Predestined, election, and foreknowledge. Predestined, election, and foreknowledge. Because you're going to come across them in your Bible. You say, well, what does that mean? And somebody's going to tell you, well, it means this. And if you're not careful and you don't look at the, uh, what the Bible says, you could maybe fall into that thought. Look at Romans chapter number 8. Romans chapter number 8. Here are all of the verses that mention predestined Romans chapter 8 and then Ephesians chapter number 1 in just a second. Okay, Romans chapter number 8 and verse number 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, 
that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Now look, keep a place, keep your marker here, something. And uh, turn to Ephesians chapter number 1. Ephesians chapter number 1. Hello. Ephesians chapter number 1. And let's look at verse number... Thank you. And then what's the next verse after that? Oh, you don't have foreknowledge. Okay. <laughs> Ephesians chapter number 1. <laughs> if you don't have foreknowledge about that, how can you have it about salvation, right, really? Look at Ephesians 1 verse 5. Uh, whoops, I'm in Galatians. That won't work. I didn't have foreknowledge either. Okay. Ephesians 1 verse 5. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Look at verse 11. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. Now, these are all the verses that deal with predestined in the Bible. We have predestined, we have foreknowledge. Now, foreknowledge comes from two words, doesn't it? I mean, we can pretty much figure out what they are. Uh, this simply means to know in advance. Foreknowledge, to know in advance. God foreknew who would believe the gospel in advance. And because of that knowledge, we see in Romans chapter 9 that he predestined those who would be saved to something that is very unique. And that is to be conformed to the image of his son. God knew who would get saved. God knows everything. He knew who would get saved. And then he said, for those who get saved, I predestined for them to be like Christ. Now, guess what? We don't all always obey that piece, do we? That's our choice. We are supposed to be like Christ. We are supposed to be growing in our faith. But we are to be conformed to the image of his son, and we are to be conformed unto obedience. Brother Barnes and I talked about uh, Charles Spurgeon this week. There's a lot of people who would say, well, Spurgeon was a, was a Calvinist, and he said this and this and this. And Spurgeon, and some of his early writings, you can take some of them, you can say, you know what, it really looks like it. But then you take some of his writings about the freeness of salvation and uh, some of his sermons on just the simplicity of the gospel, and absolutely you understand and read his own writings. He believed in that anyone could accept Christ. He said this, our conformity to Christ is the sacred object of predestination. It wasn't that we are stuck like, oh yeah, I'm, I have to get saved because God already made me get saved. Well, that takes away your free will, doesn't it? Uh, no, we are to be conformed to the image of Christ. That is his, that is his plan and his purpose when we trust Christ. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read something to you. So, you hear about this thing of, uh, of Calvinism. A lot of times it, it pops up in our Baptist churches. And they like to use uh, an acronym because acronyms uh, are easy to remember. So theirs is a what? A, a tulip, okay? So it's a flower, a tulip. It's a deadly flower in that regard. Okay, so there's five letters in the word tulip. And uh, it means this. According to that, it means total depravity. 
Okay, now I'm just going to explain these in a paragraph. It won't take a long time, but uh, you can remember it. Total depravity. The total depravity of man. Man is totally depraved. Number two, unconditional election. Unconditional election. Number three. Now remember, uh, these, are, these are wicked, damnable uh, teachings, okay? But we need to know what they are. Uh, number three, limited atonement. Limited atonement. The atonement was only available for a small amount. It was like a limited time offer, right? Only on Tuesday. Uh, you can only get it from 5 to 8. Only when the red light special is on. That's the only time you can get say Limited atonement. Number four, irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. So God's grace is irresistible. You, 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 you can't do anything about it if he wants you to get saved. Number uh, last, five, perseverance of the saints. Perseverance of the saints. So there's the teaching of uh, the tulip doctrine of uh, the Calvinists. And, and here is a description of each one of those. According to them, total depravity is the teaching that the unregenerate man is totally dead in sin to the extent that he has the inability to freely accept Jesus Christ. Unconditional election is the teaching that God, by a sovereign eternal decree, unconditionally elected a certain number of men to salvation. Limited atonement is the teaching that Jesus Christ, by his death on the cross, only made an atonement for the group of men previously elected to salvation. Irresistible grace is the teaching that God irresistibly overpowers the will of the elect sinner with his grace and regenerates him, granting him faith and repentance to believe on Jesus Christ. Perseverance of the saints is the teaching that all of the elect who have been regenerated by God will persevere in the faith and ultimately die in a state of grace. The importance of these five points to Calvinism can be seen by what Calvinists equate them to. Calvinists are adamant that their insistence that the five points of Calvinism, the tulip, are the gospel. That's what they say the gospel is. Now, that's not what your Bible says. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, the gospel is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. And that is, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, by which ye are saved. We are saved by the gospel. I love the word gospel. It's right out in the front on the door. All right? I love the word gospel. It's the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. But to the person who believed this false doctrine, the gospel includes these five tenets. And here is what they say in some of their own leaders' words. Steele and Thomas, in their writing, The Five Points of Calvinism by Presbyterian and Reformed Publishing, on page Nine by their own publishing company say this: the five these five doctrines, the tulip, form the basic framework of God's plan for saving sinners. Wow, that's pretty damaging when you read what that word tulip means. God's plan of Scripture, they say. Revealed, God's plan of salvation revealed in the scriptures consists of what is popularly known as the five points of Calvinism. Leonard Copps actually says there should be ten points. He is a prominent writer in this Calvinistic movement. He says that included in the ten points of the gospel should also be infant baptism. That's pretty crazy, right? Because you think, well, and, and so they would think, and they, and they teach, and I've read some of their writings this week, they teach that 
um, for, for those who are elected, if your baby would get sprinkled when they're an infant, then you can continue that election in your family. So, you know, the elected family have special rights, and uh, so they sprinkle them, and now they can go to heaven too because now they're going to be elected uh, because of their infant baptism. The Sovereign Grace Baptist, Fred Phelps, claims that the preaching of the cross, 1 Corinthians 1.18, is an ellipsis standing for the five points of Calvinism. He then not only implacably insists that if you do not know the five points of Calvinism, you do not know the gospel, but some perversion of it. But, he goes on to say, if you do not have a thorough knowledge and understanding of the five points of Calvinism, you are truly in darkness and ignorant of all divine truth. And if you do not have an intelligent belief in and love for the five points of Calvinism, you have no rational religion, but are bound up in a superstition and religious lies. Now, with that, let me just briefly read that. Total depravity, the teaching that the unregenerate man is totally dead to sin to the extent that he has the inability to freely accept Jesus Christ. Unconditional election is a teaching that God, by a sovereign, eternal decree, unconditionally elected a certain number of men to salvation. Limited atonement is a teaching that Jesus Christ, by his death on the cross, only made an atonement for the group of men previously elected to salvation. Irresistible grace is the teaching that God irresistibly overpowers the will of the elect sinner with his grace and regenerates him, granting him faith and repentance to believe on Jesus Christ. Perseverance of the saints is the teaching that all of the elect who have been regenerated by God will persevere in the faith and ultimately die in a state of grace. You know, there's people in the Bible I can think of that didn't do that last point. I mean, pretty simply, right? Uh, Lot didn't die in a state of grace, right? Noah uh, didn't finish uh, very graceful. Uh, and so many people. Now, uh, here's, here's continuing the thought. Does God know what is going to happen in the world? Okay? Does God know what's going to happen in the world or does he... Does he get shocked? I mean, does God get taken by surprise? I mean, when God uh, opens the newspaper tomorrow morning, does he go, wow, I can't believe that happened, right? I, of course he doesn't, no. Uh, nothing takes God by surprise. Did the Lord know about the different servants in the Bible or in the world? Did he know that they would serve him? Yes. Look at Acts chapter number 9. Acts chapter number 9. So, so the Lord comes to Saul of Tarshish, who is a chief of sinners, who's a wicked man. He's persecuting the church. He's killing Christians. He knocks them down. He blinds them in Acts chapter number 9. Now, he goes into the city of Damascus. He's sitting there. He's blind. The Lord comes to a man named Ananias, and he says, Ananias, I want you to go and meet Saul of Tarsus. I want you to put your hands on him, and he's blind, and I want him to receive his sight again. Then he's going to get baptized, right? And he says this in verse number 15. But the Lord said unto him. So Ananias is afraid. He's like, wait a minute. This guy is persecuting Christians. I'm on his list. All right. And the Lord said unto him, go thy way. For he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Did the Lord Jesus Christ know that Saul was going to be a chosen vessel? Yes, he made him a chosen vessel. Did he uh, get off? Was he on the wrong path for so long? Yes, he was. But he was a chosen vessel. I want you to think about this. Look at Ezra chapter number 1. Ezra chapter number 1. In Ezra chapter number 1, you have the end of the captivity of Israel. 
and you have uh, the 70 years of captivity is over and people are going to be sent back to rebuild the wall and rebuild the temple and rebuild the city and rebuild the people. And God used a heathen king named Cyrus to give the materials to write the, uh, you know, safe passage letters to Nehemiah, right? Look at verse number one. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. God used a heathen king to build Jerusalem back. God used a heathen king to give the materials and write the letters of safety. And God used him in his will. Moses, did it surprise the Lord about all the events leading up to Moses' leadership for the children of Israel to get get them out of Egypt? You know, I was thinking about this. If, If Moses had no say in the matter... Would he have killed a man causing God's plan to be delayed for 40 years? Can you imagine God going, oh, man, Moses, you just messed up my plan. You weren't supposed to do that. (laughs) I think Moses said, okay, God's going to make me uh, a leader. God's going to use me uh, to to lead his people out. And he thought he was going to do it his way. And he had to pay for 40 years on the backside of the desert, didn't he? And then finally the burning bush. Moses had a say in the matter, but God knew who would lead the Israelites. God knew who would write the first five books of the Bible. Isn't the, the Bible, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven? And God used Moses to write it. So uh, God knew what was going to happen because he sees the end from the beginning. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24 says, By faith, Moses. By faith, Moses. You know, if, if Moses was an automaton and he could do, uh, could he do anything by faith? Could he do it if he was just a robot and he said, okay, I have to do what, what God created me to do. Uh, could he do anything by faith? Faith is, I can't see it. Faith is, I don't know how it's going to end up, but God told me to do it. It could be, you know, John the Baptist by faith said to the king, hey, it's not lawful for you to have your uh, brother's wife, right? And he put him in prison and he cut his head off. Now, he was probably thinking, you know, it's going to turn out he lived happily ever after. But he didn't live happily ever after, okay? But he did it by faith. By faith, Moses. Uh, look at Hebrews chapter 11, matter of fact. And uh, verse number 27. Hebrews 11 and verse number 27. By faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. God already knew what was going to happen. But Moses had a will in the matter. Look at Hebrews chapter 11. Again, uh, verse number 20. We just read verse 27. Look at verse number 25. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. If God made Moses do that, then did he choose? No, Moses chose. God said, okay, I know who's going to lead the children of Israel out, but I'm going to give him the choice. He made the choice. God said, I already knew what choice he was going to make. God didn't make the choice for him. Now, the above list, Ezra, uh, talking about Cyrus, uh, Paul, Saul of Tarshish, a chosen vessel, Moses, we could go on and list a bunch, but this is God choosing someone for a specific task, but not choosing them for salvation. Did the Lord know about all the villains in the Bible? Okay, you just... 
thought about that'd be a good word to put use. Look at Jeremiah chapter 43. A lot of bad guys in the Bible, right? Jeremiah chapter 43. Did God know that they would do what they did? Of course he did. Jeremiah chapter 43, verse number 10. And say unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will send and take Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, next two words, my servant. Well, Nebuchadnezzar was the one who destroyed Israel. Nebuchadnezzar was the one who had, uh, you know, the people brought away captive. Nebuchadnezzar was the one in charge of burning and pillaging uh, Israel. But God said, He is my servant. God used him to do what? To judge Israel. Look at Romans chapter number 9. We find that Pharaoh was a tool in God's hand to oppress his people. Romans chapter number 9 and verse number 17. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even by the same purpose have I raised thee up. God raised up Pharaoh. Now, it's not talking about salvation. It's talking about a circumstance. That I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Uh, look at verse number 22. What if God willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering, the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? Now, Calvinists like to use this and say, you know, God elects some people as vessels to wrath. They can't, they can't help it. They're just they're going to hell. He puts his wrath on them and he gets glorified when he sends them to hell. A vessel of wrath. It's talking about Pharaoh. Verse 23. And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. And they use that. They say, see, there are other people who are vessels of mercy. Which he hath afore prepared unto glory. Now look at Exodus chapter 14. Yes, the Lord did harden Pharaoh's heart. Six or seven times it says that the Lord hardened his heart. As a vessel of dishonor, he had a hard heart and oppressed God's people. Exodus chapter 14 and verse number 17. And I, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them, and I will get me honor upon Pharaoh and upon all his host, upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen. So even Pharaoh honored the Lord by following the, uh, the Israelites into the Red Sea and, and being anahiliated. There's a good Greek word, right? And, and being drowned. So he said, the vessel of, uh, of, of wrath has become a vessel of honor. Now, it's not talking about salvation. It's talking about circumstances. So when we look at Romans chapter 9, we find that the application in Romans chapter 9 is the nation of Israel. What did the nation of Israel do when, when Jesus came? Well, the Bible says he came unto his own. And his own what? Received him not. But as many as receive him, to them he gave you power to become the sons of God, even to them which believe on his name. And it goes on. This is which are born. Uh, not of the will of man, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of uh, blood. I can't get it straight. But you get the idea there. So he says, I, I, I'm, I'm taking all who will believe on my name. So as the nation of Israel rejected Christ, they became a vessel of wrath. And as a nation, look at verse 32, Romans 9, verse 32. Wherefore, because they sought it not by faith, 
but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. It's talking about Jesus Christ. The nation of Israel stumbled at Christ. They came to the Messiah and they said, No, this isn't who we want. This isn't who we thought it would be. We don't accept him. We reject him. Yet, individual Jews, such as Paul, said that he started out as a blasphemer. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter number 1. So the nation of Israel, as a whole, rejected Jesus Christ as the Messiah. In Jerusalem, they rejected Him. But you have the book of Acts, and thank God, some people received Him. Matter of fact, many people received Him. You have thousands of them receiving Him. So the nation rejected Him, but individuals received Him. Paul said in 1 Timothy 1, verse 13, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it in unbelief. Look at verse 16. Howbeit for this cause I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Paul was a blasphemer. He didn't receive the mercy of God. And yet, in verse 16, he did receive the mercy of God. He after received. He was a vessel of wrath and became a vessel of mercy. It was his choice. Salvation was up to him. Again, these people mentioned they were chosen for a specific task, not chosen to be lost. In the case of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter number four shows that he very well did choose the Lord for salvation. You read uh, Daniel chapter four, where he's out there for seven seasons, right? Probably seven years. His hair grows long like feathers. His fingers are like eagle talons. And he says, you know what? The most high ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will. I know who is in charge. God's in charge. He had pride before he walked out on his porch. It's not this great Babylon, which I have built. And God says, you know what? Go eat grass for seven years and then go figure out who's really in charge. And so finally he praises and extols the God of heaven. I believe Nebuchadnezzar will be in heaven and we'll see him there someday. So here is uh, a man that God used and uh, he, was a, he was a wicked man. He was an ungodly man. He persecuted God's people and he ended up trusting God uh, to take him to heaven, I believe. Now the person who believes God chose some to salvation and others to reprobation and damnation most often teaches that foreknow instead of meaning if I, if, okay, so we, we foreknow there's going to be a snowstorm, right? I mean, the panic is set in. Oh, there's going to be a snowstorm. Oh, it's going to be 18 inches. Okay, it's just water. Uh, I used to say that till there was a tsunami in Japan. I was like, that's just water. That's <laughs> like bad. Okay, but we foreknow there's a storm coming, okay? Uh, we, we understand. We see uh, they have radar and they're tracking the thing and they get the trajectory and all that stuff. And, uh, but, but foreknow, instead of meaning to know in advance, God doesn't get surprised. When a person trusts Christ, he already knew they would. You know, when I trusted Christ in 1971, God didn't go, Wow! Hey, we just got, we just got this little kid right here, trusted Christ. Wow, that's it. Let's send him to New Hampshire someday. No, God already knew I was going to trust Christ. God already knew I was going to come to New Hampshire someday. However, God did not determine in advance or foreordain that I would receive Christ. He knew I would, but He didn't make me. That's the, that's the difference. So they, they changed that word. Now, let me just read to you something. Uh, it's just a little wordy. 
And I don't want to miss any of the words here. Um, and then we've got a little bit more. In order to escape this straightforward interpretation. Okay, let's look at, back at Romans chapter number uh, 9 again. Romans chapter number 9. Romans chapter number 9. 8 verse 29 rather. Romans chapter 8 verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did Predestinate. Now, notice these are two different words. Okay? We're going to look at this. For whom he did foreknow them, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. Simply put, God already knew who was going to be saved. And God wants everyone who gets saved to be like Jesus Christ. God, God doesn't make anyone get saved. God doesn't keep anyone lost. He says, if you want to get saved, it's up to you. It's totally your choice. I want you to get saved. I sent Jesus Christ to die for you for the sins of the whole world. But he gives the choice up to the individual. Now, when the individual trusts Christ, he already knew because everything before the world began was already... Look, the book of Revelation, God's not going to say, wow, that really happened. He's like, no, I gave it to John a couple thousand years ago. I know it's going to happen, okay? I didn't make it happen. It already happened because I saw it happen in the, in before the world began. But he doesn't make the people do that, okay? Okay. Uh, now, so God wants us to be conformed to the image of his son. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. In order to escape the straightforward interpretation, the Calvinist must establish another meaning for foreknow and foreknowledge that fits his theory. Generally, this attempt must take two forms. Most try to maintain that foreknowledge and foreknow, instead of meaning to know in advance, means to determine in advance or to foreordain. I mentioned this guy last week who's a prominent Calvinist today, Piper. John Piper writes, He, God, foreknew, that is, elects a people for himself. End of quote. Others suggest that it means to love beforehand. And when you get into that one, that is a really crazy... We're not even going to look at that. Uh, There are, however, several reasons why neither of these stratagems will work. Various Calvinist authors argue that foreknowledge is the equivalent of determined counsel. God's omniscient wisdom and intention, God's prerogative to choose beforehand. John MacArthur, who is a Calvinist, writes, God's foreknowledge, therefore, is not a reference to his omniscient foresight, but to his foreordination. God does indeed foresee who is going to be a believer, but the faith he foresees is the faith he himself creates. It's not that he merely sees what will happen in the future. Rather, he ordains it. The Bible clearly teaches that God sovereignly chooses people to believe in him. End of quote. Piper quotes C.E.B. Cranfield, who refers to the foreknowledge of Romans 8.29 as, quote, that special taking knowledge of a person which in God's electing grace, which is God's electing grace. Piper then comments, That foreknowledge is virtually the same as election. He foreknows, that is, elects a people for himself. Now, if you look at the Bible, and you even read, well, if you read in Acts chapter number 2, you find there that Peter clearly distinguishes, look at Acts chapter number 2. Peter clearly distinguishes there's two different words. And they mean two different things. Acts chapter number 2 and verse number 23. Him, Jesus, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands 
have crucified and slain. Now, the counsel and the foreknowledge are two different things. Counsel or determination as well as election from foreknowledge, Christ being delivered by the determinate, it's a different word, harizo, counsel, uh, to a word of foreknowledge, progenzoku, of God. If these are the same, then Peter is saying nonsensically that Christ was delivered by the foreknowledge and the foreknowledge, but he didn't. He said the counsel and the foreknowledge. So we see there's two different words. Um, Paul likewise makes a clear distinction for whom he, God, did foreknow. He also did predestinate. The Greek kea denotes a differentiation, thus making it abundantly clear that foreknowledge could not be the same as predestination, or Paul, as already pointed out, would be redundantly saying, whom he did predestinate, him he also did predestinate. So you see, there's two different words, and they mean two different things. This inspired statement by Peter on the day of Pentecost concerning Christ's betrayal and crucifixion provides important insight into God's outworking of his eternal plan. It clearly reveals that even in declaring future events through his prophets and accomplishing them in history, according to his will, God takes into account what he by his foreknowledge knows will be the action and reaction of men. He did not cause Judas to betray Christ, nor did he cause the Jews to reject him or the Romans to crucify him. He ended his sermon in Romans 9. It is not of him that wills, nor of him that runs, but of God that shows mercy. Yet, the last page in the Bible says, Whosoever will, let him come and take the water of life freely. Salvation is free to all. God doesn't choose anyone and make them lost or make them saved. It is our perfect will. God gives us the will, whatever we choose. God did not determine in advance who would be saved and who would be lost. He determined that there would be those who would respond to the gospel and they would have the blessings, number one, of being conformed to the image of his son, and number two, to be obedient because of what they've been given. Let me just give you this thought. There are three things that God cannot do when it comes to salvation. Three things. The first one is this. Look at Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, we have Jesus in the garden and he's praying. It's right before his betrayal. It's right before his scourging. It's right before his crucifixion. It's right before he bears our sins. Three things God can't do when it comes to salvation. Number one, he cannot forgive sin without the penalty being paid. The penalty either has to be paid by each one of us, or the penalty is what Jesus paid for us. In verse number 39, And he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. God cannot forgive sin without the penalty being paid. And Jesus Christ paid the penalty of sin in our place. Number two, God cannot force a gift Upon anyone. Look at Romans chapter 5. If you force a gift on someone, is it a gift anymore? No. But we read over and over again in the Bible that salvation is a gift. Well, if it's a gift, but you were already predetermined that you were going to receive it, then is it a gift anymore? No. We receive a gift by our own free will. Someone gets the gift, someone pays for the gift, offers it to us. We can walk away and not take it. Romans chapter 5 and verse number 15. But not as the offense, 
so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. So it clearly shows here that the gift is by Jesus Christ. It's talking about salvation. It's talking about He paid for our sins. So number one, God cannot forgive sin without the penalty being paid. And number two, God cannot force a gift upon anyone. If it is predetermined, then how can it be a gift? If it's predetermined, it's, I don't know, it's an inheritance, right? It's something you got stuck with. You didn't choose it. It was chosen for you. With a gift, it must be received willingly by the recipient. A gift cannot be imposed by the giver upon the recipient against his or her will. Salvation is a gift, clearly in the Bible. And number three, Romans chapter 10 and verse number nine. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. God cannot force anyone to love him or to accept his love. Love is not forced upon anyone. You know, you, you love, you're married, right? You love your spouse, right? You choose to love them. You're not forced to love them. That's your choice. True love can only come voluntarily from the heart, Romans 10, 9, that thou shalt, uh, Romans 10, uh, 9 and 10. For with the heart, man believeth unto righteousness. That's our love for God. So you know what? I know what Jesus did for me. I know that God loves me. I choose to love him back. I would receive that gift. Number three, God cannot force anyone to love him or to accept his gift. True love only comes voluntarily. Now, with that in mind, since God wants all to come to repentance, 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You know, there's over 7 billion people on the planet today, and Jesus died for every one of them, and every one of them could be saved if they would be saved Every one of them could go to heaven if they would receive Christ as their Savior. God wants every one of them in heaven because he paid for all of their sins. Since God wants all to come through, you know, you read about the Calvinists, they they really aren't into the the grace of God much at all. It's it's the wrath of God, the anger of God, the the God are just holding, you know, sway over you and looking for an excuse to rub you out and put his thumb on you. That's not the God of the Bible. Oh, yeah, God is a consuming fire. God is, don't mess with God. But God is love, and God is patient. God said, Ephraim, uh, you know, is joined to his idols. Let him alone. And then, he, and then God started even thinking. He says, you know what? How can I let Ephraim alone? I taught him how to walk. I took him by the hands. I, 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 okay, take one step. Just like you taught your little child. And no matter how far away they stray, you love them. God says, I, I love Ephraim, even though he's joined to his idols. God is a God of mercy and love. Let's you and I determine here tonight that we're going to give the gospel to someone this week and give them an opportunity to receive the gift of God and to know the love of God that comes with salvation. Would you do that? I hope you would. Give someone an opportunity to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel is the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, not a flower.